We have a firm foundation, Jesus Christ. And the way we know that is from His Word. And so we turn there now. Open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew 18. To Matthew 18. Of course, we've kind of launched off of Ephesians 4.25 as we've been going through this book verse by verse. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members with one another. We are called to speak the truth. The aim of every true disciple is truth. And we have seen that speaking the truth can take on a positive form, a more of a preventative kind of discipline, such as encouragement or comfort or training in righteousness, or it can also take on a negative form, such as a warning or rebuke, which is why we find ourselves in Matthew 18. Now, we need to be careful here because actually both are positive. They ended a positive result. All truth is positive, and that is because both are aimed at helping a brother being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, to stay on the path of faithfulness. And yet, one reason we have camped out on Matthew 18 is because because hard truths are hardly spoken. And this is because we fail to see past the difficult conversation to the good end which Jesus has in mind. And so, one last time, we're going to look at Matthew 18 and other related passages to learn how we might best help each other in the speaking of truth when needed or when a brother goes astray. So follow along with me as we read Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. This is the king's law concerning offenses in his church. This is the head of the household speaking to the children of the household with the intent that we would listen and apply. We've considered so far over the past couple of weeks four important truths concerning this passage that must be understood. We've considered the goal of church discipline, which is restoration, the context of church discipline, which is a loving family, go to your brother, the excuses of church discipline, which are none, and the attitudes of church discipline, which are love and humility. And now this morning, we're going to finish this little series with three more important truths 
I have more, but as we're in Matthew 18, looking at church discipline, I was afraid that perhaps y'all would discipline me out of the church if I continued. So this will be the last, and we come to the first, a very obvious and important one, and that is the process of church discipline. Church discipline is orderly. There is a process to this. You may have noticed a very clear process. There is a right order for how to handle interpersonal conflicts and sin in God's house. And the reason is because God, the Father of the house, desires peace and order in His house. At 1 Timothy 3, 4, we get this by implication. Here, one of the qualifications of an elder. Paul writes to Timothy, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, what's the issue here? The issue is one of discipline. It's one of order. He, the elder, is to manage and to lead his house in such a way that his children are kept in right order. And of course, one way this happens is that children know that if they get out of order, there will be loving discipline administered. Paul says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, if he cannot manage conflict and sin within his own small family, how will he be able to administer discipline and care in God's family? God desires order and peace. And one way we keep this within our own families is our children know if they get out of line, there will be loving discipline. Now, I don't know if your kids are this way, but when loving discipline is administered, perhaps your kids know their responsibility is to go to the door and listen. And when they listen, they are warned. Here is a father who will correct me when I'm wrong, always with patience, always with love, but there will be correction. And so it is in the church. As members, every single one of us should know that should we decide to pursue our sin in a proud and obstinate way, no longer listening to the body of Christ, speaking truth to us in love, we should know, based upon the words of Christ, that there will be discipline administered. There's an order to this. 1 Corinthians 4.14 tells us why, but all things in the church, Paul says, should be done decently and in order. Literally, order there meaning correctly, honestly, and according to proper procedure, this is what the lexicon says, as laid down in Scripture. Why? Again, our Father is a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14.30, for God is not a God of confusion. Other translations would say disorder. He's not a God of disorder. And where does that disorder come from? It comes from opposition to established authority, which is the Word of God. He's not a God of confusion, but of peace, the verse says. Now, there is a God of confusion. There is a God of disorder and discord. And this is, of course, Satan. How did he bring disorder and discord? There was opposition to establish sovereign authority. And thus Satan loves to sow seeds of discord both inside and outside of the church. 
And so we are all wary. And we all look out for Satan because he's always looking for brothers and sisters in the church who would be willing to play an instrument in his band. One of discord. Why do we play? Well, we play in that band because we aren't worried about anybody else but ourselves. doesn't matter how it sounds. We're just worried about how we play. But our God is a God of peace and order, and thus we are not surprised to find that when sin comes into the church, which seeks to create disorder, God wants us, desires us to deal with it in an orderly and peaceful way. There is an extremely orderly way to then guard the doctrine of the church, the life of the church, purity amongst believers, and the unity of the church, a four-step process. Step one, now, if your brother sins, uh, stop right there, no perfect church, it's going to happen, don't be surprised, there will be sin in the church. This does not mean if your brother sins, you leave the church, you no longer come to church, this is a part of church. If your brother sins, go, show him his fault between you and him alone, and if he listens, you have won your brother. This is step one of the church discipline, loving confrontation, speaking the truth of love to one another. This is step one. This is plain English or plain Greek in the original. This is what you would call private, loving confrontation. Easy to understand. Go, show him his fault. It's emphatic in the Greek, the next statement. He says, between you and him alone, emphatic. In other words, our Lord wanted us to get this. When we're sinned against, we don't go to someone else. We go to our brother. Now, we can help each other here. And we all need help. I need help because this is so easy to do. When you are offended, you really don't want to go to the person you're offended with. You're offended with them. Rather, what you would want to do is go to everyone else, someone who will listen. We all need faithful friends who, in those circumstances, will lovingly redirect us back to our brother. Listen, I hear I hear what you're trying to say or what you want to say, but can I just stop you right there and ask you one quick question? Have you gone? Have you gone? I don't want to go. I want you to listen. Can I stop you right there? I can't. And let me tell you why. The Lord commands it. He says go. He doesn't say go to me. He says, go to the one that offended you. If they persist, Jesus commanded, I cannot listen. Well, where does Jesus get this from? Well, he gets it from the Old Testament. This was laid down long ago. This is how Israel should handle offenses. Leviticus 19.17 Moses says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Instead, opposite to that, here's love. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, your brother. Why? Lest you incur sin because of him. He goes on, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. New Testament language, we are members of one another. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And then here's a nice stamp of approval. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, it says. This is my covenant revealed name. I am putting my stamp upon this process. This is what you do. Now, in this verse, there is a command and a warning given. And it's interesting, it's not given to the sinning brother. It's given to the one who's been sinned against. And what does it say? The command is simple. Go to the one who has offended you. And the warning is simple. If you don't, and you allow hatred to be stirred up in your heart, you hold the grudge, you are sinning yourself. Well, wait a second. I didn't want to get involved in this. I didn't ask that person to sin against me. No. (laughs) But you live in a sinful world, and it's going to happen, and there is a way to deal with sin in a loving way in the church. The command is simple. You go. And if you don't, you find yourself in a position of allowing that sin to spread, which is the opposite of what Jesus wanted. Matthew Henry gives a warning. He says, An inward wound, a grudge that is nursed, is most dangerous when it is allowed allowed to bleed out internally. We must take care of these wounds. And we take care of these wounds by following the process. We go to our brother rather than to someone else so that the great physician might heal such internal wounds through the process he has given us. And listen, we know when you go and you go around telling it to everybody else, you don't feel any better. Why? Because you're still not restored to your brother. The sin is still not taken care of. That does not help. And so you go, as Jesus says, to go to your brother, to your sister. We can't let the sisters off. Okay, sisters sin too. We go to them. We reason with them. Now, it's no accident within the same context of Leviticus 19, verse 11, just before the verses, we have this, you shall not deal falsely. You shall not deal not according to the truth. Don't deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. And what he means by that is further explained in verse 17. Right before verse 17, verse 16, he says, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Here's the stamp of approval. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. This verse lives in the white spaces of Matthew 18, 15. This is not what we do. We don't get offended and go tell it to the church. Go tell it to our brother or sister, to our friends. It's easy to do, especially when we are offended, but this is not what we do. And one reason we don't do this is because this is to take one sin and then to lay many sins on top of it. And Jesus had a goal in mind, to stop sin. That's His goal. Satan also has a goal. You know what his goal is? To spread sin. So here's one way you do it. You take this one sin, and you tell it here, you tell it here, you tell it here, you tell it here, and then you just send it off into the world. There you go, off on the train track, you're never getting that back. Jesus says, let it stop here. Go to your brother. Reason with him frankly so that it may stop. This is Jesus' desire. Gossip is to say something to someone else that we should be saying to the person who offended us. Slander is to misrepresent someone. 
Slander and gossip is literally the antithesis, the opposite to Jesus' process. It's what Satan wants. It's not what Jesus wants. So verse 17, go reason with your brother frankly. This is the correct way to deal with an offense. Matthew 18, 15, go tell your brother your fault. The correct way to deal with an offense. To reason frankly. What does this mean? This means to show him. To lay it out, reason with him. And if your brother is still open to reason, you should continue to reason with him. And this is the sense of Matthew 18, 15. It says, show him his fault. He says what the NASB says, or the LSB. ESV says, tell him his fault. Those four words, tell him his fault, one word in the Greek, this is what it means. Convict. Convict. Well, this is serious stuff. What is he talking about? John 16, 8 uses the same word when speaking of the Holy Spirit. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The goal of this first step is to lovingly reason with our brother and to convince him of the sin. To show him. It is to go to such a meeting and you've looked through your Bible, you already know, you're, you're convinced in your own mind, and you bring it to Him, and you say, look, right here, this is it. Do you see it? I love you, I don't want this to continue. We reason, and we convict, and we show fault. And why do we bring our Bibles? Why do we convict in such a way? Because the Holy Spirit uses the truth to open the eyes. We don't bring worldly arguments We don't bring our own arguments. That is easy to do as well. We don't get caught up in trying to prove each other right or wrong. We just stick to the truth. This is the only safe way to go through this process. This is not easy to go to someone. It takes courage, but we go. And did you notice Jesus did not give any caveats, as we mentioned last time. It's not a certain kind of person he's looking for. It's not like we have, you know, these people over here, they're really good at confrontation, you know, but these people are not. Jesus doesn't say if your brother sins against you and you love to go and punch people in the face, you go. It's not what he says. Actually, it might be the most quiet amongst us that are really good at this. They're empathetic, they're gentle, they're patient, they're kind. Perhaps. It's time for you to step up and be a part of this, to help the church in this way. This is for all of us. Now, Matthew 18, lest we begin to go to our brother so that he might see all of his faults, and we take offense at every little thing, we must say this, that is not what Jesus had in mind. He is not creating a situation where we would exasperate each other. Okay, you, you're driving to church, and you come into the parking lot, and there, he took my parking spot again. There it is. He's sitting in my chair. I didn't know it, but did you hear it? He's a Longhorn fan. <laughs> Get him out of the church. Tell it to the church. This is not what we're after here. Such things like that, you walk by someone, they didn't say hi to me or whatever, that's to take an offense. That's not an offense given. And we must differentiate between the two. We aren't to go around taking offense at everything. If that's you, your favorite phrase, if you were to become king, would be off with his head. That's not what we're after. 1 Peter 1.8, 1 
Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We're not talking about major sin necessarily in that way, but small sins. And then if we follow this process, it could be bigger sins, because what's the end of this process? It's forgiveness and restoration. Proverbs 19.11, good sense. This is good sense. Wisdom makes one slow to anger, and it is His glory to overlook an offense. We need more people in the church full of glory. God's people ought to be patient, long-suffering, willing to overlook a multitude of transgressions. This is God's people. And so then, if you're gearing up for a confrontation, you are convinced they walked by you and did not say hi because they hate you, then perhaps you should wait a second and say, would I want someone to respond like this to me? Would I want someone to apply this standard to my life? Well, this is important because Jesus does say, judge not lest you be judged. Have I misjudged His motives? Am I believing the best? Is my motive right? Can I overlook this without it affecting my relationship with this person? So not every sin needs to be confronted, nor should it be confronted. And one way that will happen is because we don't take on the crown of a king, but servants' garments. We understand our place is one of humility, and this could happen where we could be sinned against in some way and yet not affect our relationship. We know the Lord's working on them. We don't have to correct every little wrong. And so we need to know the difference between that. Solomon gives us much help for how we can be this kind of person. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So we just start the process with this in mind nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. He's not perfect. She's not perfect. No one's perfect. And then Solomon says, also, do not take to heart, I think he has in mind here, do not take an offense with all the things that people say. Listen, sometimes people say things that they shouldn't say. Ask Nikki, I say some pretty dumb things sometimes. It happens. We misspeak. Why does he say this? Don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For your heart knows that many times yourself you have cursed others. And we come with this understanding, uh, listen, the same judgment that's been applied to them, I must apply to myself. What does this create? Graciousness and patience, humility and love. Jesus agrees. I've already mentioned it several times. Judge not that you not be judged for the judgment you pronounce. You will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured. That's a promise. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me go ahead and take that little speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Who is this passage for? It's for you, me. This is not a passage where you read it and all of a sudden in your mind the whole time you're thinking of that person with those logs. If that's the case, you've got a log, a big one. 
You're probably hitting a lot of people over the head with it. No, you stop. You think, could this be me? Is there something I missed? I know there must be because I'm a sinner. Now, how do you see these logs? You don't see the logs by yourself being the standard. You'll never see them. You don't see the logs if your neighbor is the standard, but you will see the log if God is the standard. You go before the Lord. And you know what this does? This creates a situation where you're now able to go to your brother with clear eyes to see, to help. We confess with our mouth our own sins before going to our brother or else we put our hand over our mouth and we stop talking. We ask the Lord to remove what's in our heart so that we might help, so that he might see and God can remove what's in his heart. This is what Jesus meant. Do not bring a charge to your brother without first weighing your own heart and using the same standard against yourself. Now then, we assume we're doing that. A brother sins, you've examined yourself, you've examined it biblically, the sin is not minor, it's caused a breach in the relationship that you cannot overlook, you're having a hard time. You don't want this because the Father doesn't want this, and you don't want this because He's put the love of God in you. He's grieving the Holy Spirit. What do you do? How should you resolve it? We've examined ourselves, disciplined ourselves. What do we do? You go. You go. You reason with Him. You show Him. Here it is. He doesn't listen. He's not seeing it. Maybe he hardens his heart. What do you do? Can I suggest one simple thing? Pause for a moment and then go again. Go again. Maybe go again. The Lord's been patient with us. We go again. And by doing this, do you know what this shows? Two important, really important things that your sinning brother will need to see before this ramps up. He needs to know, without a shadow of a doubt, you love him. You're not out to expose him, embarrass him, get vengeance. You want restoration. He needs to know this. Second, it will also establish that you have done your best to reason with your brother honestly and frankly, confirming that the issue truly is one where he sees it, he's obstinate, it's biblical, and thus you can move forward. That's step one. And that will be extremely important because step two brings integrity to both people. You tell it, the two other witnesses, Matthew 18, 16, step two. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You go find two other people, faithful witnesses, men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit. You won't be surprised that this also finds its genesis in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 19, 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, or any wrong in connection with the offense he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three shall a charge be established. This is the process 
for legal matters in Israel. Jesus takes this process. He says we should use it for personal matters in the church as well. Regardless of the accusation, this is the process, including murder. Numbers 3530, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence, not of just one, but on the testimony of at least two. No one shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness, Moses says. So Jesus says, if your brother sins, he will not listen. Here's one way to show your heart is true. You go find two other truthful people who love that brother as well, who can bring confirmation to what you've brought and can say, yes, I agree, based upon the Word of God, this is sin. This needs to be confronted. Now, more than likely, several of you, as I have in my past, have misunderstood this concept of a witness. Does he mean that you must go find two other people who have seen this behavior before? Aha, you're right. They did it to you too. That's not what he means. This is interpersonal conflict. You know what this means? They may not have seen it. No one else saw it, just you. And one way we know that is because in the Old Testament, often such things as murders or theft, in which this would be applied, aren't seen. That's the very nature of the sin. But there was still a wrong done. What should you do? You go find two other witnesses who can listen to the charge and begin to wisely and prayerfully determine if this is true. Two faithful witnesses. This is what you do. This does not mean you go find two other friends who can gang up. That's not the idea. Two other impartial, loving witnesses committed to the truth. Why? Well, one, it's possible that the brother isn't listening because you are either knowingly or unknowingly wrong about the charge. You may have missed something. And oftentimes in our interpersonal conflicts, we get really hung up in our own way of thinking, right? And we need someone else to come in, not wrapped up in the emotions, who can look at it. It also could be true that the brother is sinning, and in such case, we need confirmation. Jesus says, take one or two witnesses so that every charge may be established. Zechariah 8.16, we have a similar thing. You remember this is our cross-reference from Ephesians 4.25. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another and render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Well, here's another requirement of those two witnesses. Are they aimed at peace? Are they aimed at love? Are they aimed at truth? That's the requirement. 1 Corinthians 6.1, Paul says this, When one of you has a grievance against one another, that's Matthew 18.15, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Why? Because the saints operate from the truth, the only standard. And then Paul goes on to say, And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angel? That's an amazing statement. I have no idea exactly what it means, but that's amazing. We must, for sure, be made perfect in the future, glorified, that we are able to judge the angels. How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? 
So if you have a case, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? These are church matters. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Now, again, we need to be clear, we're not talking about crimes. That's different. We're talking about interpersonal relationships. And Paul clearly expected the Corinthian church, a very sinful church, to be full of faithful witnesses, men of integrity, women of integrity, who could help render a true, wise judgment that would end the matter and make for peace. That's the goal. So we go. This process is filled with integrity from start to finish because Jesus was of the truth. Again, there is the potential that the sin being brought in such a meeting, it's discovered, is brought wrongly or they are wrong, and in such cases it could, this is why we stand before the Lord, we must be true, it could flip. Two or three witnesses may say, you know what, you're wrong. And now you may be dealing with someone else who is stubborn. Process is the same. You keep going. This is the case in Deuteronomy 19.16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrong, well, they may not be malicious at this point. But if that happens, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in the office of those days. There's witnesses And the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, they are found to be false, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as you meant to do to his brother. And you know what? In the case of church discipline, you know what this would mean? It flips. Now we're pleading with him. It is not like an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth situation. We're pleading with him. Be restored. See the truth. This is church discipline performed on the brother who brings the offense. Sometimes this happens. What do we learn from this? We don't mess with the God of truth. He sits over it all. So step two, if done rightly, provides protection both for the accuser and the accused. And our protection, always the greatest protection, is the truth. This is how we are protected. And this applies to every single person in the church, all of us. No one is exempt from this process. 1 Timothy 5.19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Elders are not exempt. This does not say bypass step one, go find two or three other witnesses, then you bring it. You know what this is saying? You start with step one. And if someone is offended... You don't publish that and bypass step two. No, you go to step two because every charge must be established, whoever it's against, by one, two, three witnesses. This is what he's saying. And then guess what? If that elder continues in his sin, this is what he says, 1 Timothy 5.20, as for those, who's those? The elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This is serious. This church is serious about operating the way God has called us. Same thing happens in your church. You remember your little kid standing at the door? Dad's serious. There's a fear, which hopefully is a godly fear. So this is one reason two or three witnesses are brought in to establish, simply to help, help both work it out. Sometimes there's sin on both sides, and it's just not happening, and they need help. 
This is the way conflicts happen, even in the home. Usually there's a little bit of fault and stubbornness on both sides. A lot of emotional entangleness. How can we help? Philippians 4.2 provides an example. I entreat Yodi, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Help them. They once labored side by side. So that's step two. Take two or three witnesses. We find someone to help, all for the purpose of reconciliation. Just as in step one, there's much patience, much love, much humility, maybe multiple meetings. Step two. Now step three. We've confirmed that we are dealing with a professing believer who is obstinately set on pursuing his sin. We move to step three. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, there's a stubbornness, tell it to the church. Why? Why tell it to the church? It's a family matter. It's disrupting the family. If there's big issues in your family, you tell your family. They need to know. But not just to expose, but so that the church may be a help, pleading with that family member who has hardened his heart against the truth that he might be restored. And again, can I point out, again, a process oozing with integrity? If you're telling it to the church, it better be right. It better be true. No lying here. Again, the motivation is the same. You don't tell it to the church to embarrass him. You're not going out sharing all the details, all the juicy gossip. But you're sharing enough so the church may know this is a sin. And this brother needs to be helped, needs to be restored. Well, what shall happen then? He does not listen to the church. Step four, Matthew 18, second half. If he refuses, here's another refusal, to listen even to the church. This is a very hardened person. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him as an unbeliever. Treat him as an unbeliever. Now, it is important. Jesus doesn't say that you are to call him an unbeliever. Treat him as an unbeliever. Why? Because ultimately, we don't know. We can't see the heart. Perhaps he'll be gone for just a moment, realize his mistake. We don't exasperate the situation by saying things we don't know. Jesus knows we don't know. But still, based upon the fruit, what we would do, we would share with him the gospel. We would take the truth. You once believed this. What's, what's happening? Believe the truth. This is the truth. It's so plain. Come back to Christ. There's no life out there. Only life here. We plead with him. Matthew says, treat him like a tax collector. That might have been a little bit hard for him to write. He was a tax collector. But you know what he's saying there? Treat him like I would have wanted to be treated when I was out of the church. Evangelize me. Tell me the truth. It might seem unloving to me, to old me, but that's what I needed. Tell it to me. Persist in these things. Don't give up on me. It all sounds harsh. Tell it to the church. I'm certainly not advocating for this. But one of the arguments I came across used in church history for the kind of church discipline that goes beyond what Jesus is saying and that involved actual pain, physical pain, 
was far better to experience a little disciplinary pain on the earth than to experience the eternal wrath of God. I can tell you one reason we don't do church discipline, we don't believe in hell. This is nothing. They need to see it. We speak the truth, we obey the truth by following the process of the Lord of the truth. This is the process. Always orderly, always patient, always full of love, always aimed at restoration. So we have two more truths, three more verses. The second is the authority of church discipline, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Lots of misunderstanding with this verse. This verse is not giving the church unlimited authority. Rather, it is a verse to make sure the church is doing all of this under God's authority, in accordance to the word of God. What's he saying here? Jesus had just entrusted the keys of the kingdom to Peter, Matthew 16. Peter had confessed that you are indeed the Christ. You're the Messiah. Jesus responds, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church on this confession that I am the Messiah and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And then listen to this. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Same language. What's he saying there? The people of God, the church, have the authority to pronounce what God has pronounced and to apply the standard that God has revealed. And that's important because the culture certainly won't accept that. They're going to try to get us to stop, but we have the authority to say it because God has said it. And now Jesus is using that same thing in a situation where no one's going to want you to say it. And Jesus is saying, you have the authority to say it if it is based upon truth. Again, Jesus is ratcheting this up. We're now at the court of heaven. You didn't have integrity here? You better have integrity here. Here's what I'm saying. Truly based upon the word of God. Is that the authority? Not my authority Is this based upon God's authority? This being the case, the church or leaders in the church have no authority to declare what God hasn't declared. No authority to bring conviction based upon our preferences or hunches. Only where God has spoken, this is where the people of God render true judgments. And what does he say? When you speak the truth in love, in the right way, I'm behind it. I'm with you. I'm carrying the banner ahead of you. For where two or three are gathered, Jesus says, Matthew 19, 20, in my name. Basically, what he's saying here, I would say this if I were here. If you're gathered in that way and you're sure this is what I would say, I'm there. I'm there among them. All church discipline has to be rooted in the authority of the Bible or else it has no authority. No authority. One more extremely important truth to bring to you. This is a truth that must permeate the entirety of this process. Or else this process has a real possibility of breaking down. And that is the promise of church discipline. Verse 19. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Another extremely misused verse. What is he saying? He's not saying if all of a sudden there was a Sunday and only two of you showed up, be comforted, I'm there. 
It's not that. That's true. He's omniscient. He is there. He's not saying if you want God to go with you, we need to enact a buddy system. So when you walk outside, make sure you have a buddy, and then guess what? I'm there. That's not what he's saying. He has in mind church discipline. The process. Did you notice? These are the two or three witnesses. And the two or three witnesses are there in a meeting, and they're asking. Who are they asking? The Lord. Help. We need help. What shall we do? A brother has gone off. He won't listen. What do we do? And not only that, maybe they're just saying, they're just aware. Here I am. Sinful. I don't have infinite knowledge or wisdom. How much wisdom is needed in this process? I mean, how much patience should be demonstrated before moving to steps two, three, and four? Can you find that in the Bible? I can't. What sins are serious enough to be ratcheted up? How do you know if a brother has really listened to you and repented? How do you figure out if this is true? How can I say this in such a way where my straying brother will hear me? Have I been wrong in this? Father, help. There is a real temptation in this process, at whatever point you're involved in the process, to despair. To despair. And Jesus knows that. And because he's the loving shepherd, he says this. Again, I just want to remind you, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, what are they agreeing based upon the word of God? It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. This is the same promise as the Great Commission. Do you remember the promise of the Great Commission? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm in it. And here he says, as things happen in the church, I'm in it, in this process. As you go out to win unbelievers, I'm with you. As you're in the church seeking to win a brother, I'm with you. I'm there to help you. The Lord of the truth will help you to speak the truth. The great shepherd of the sheep will help you to rescue his own. This is his will. We pray according to his will. This is the will right here, John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. You want to know God's will? You want to pray according to it? That I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but will raise it up on the last day. Father, this is your will. I know you will lose none that are yours. We are in agreement on this, that this is serious enough that this brother's soul is in danger. He's obstinately pursuing his own sin. He's living in such a way where he's rejecting you. I know this is true, that if he is his, that you will gather him, you will rescue him. Rescue him, Father, and help me to have wisdom to know how. I need wisdom. This is the goal of church discipline. Always patient, always loving, always aimed at restoration, and always covered in much prayer. Well, as we transition to the Lord's table, 
one thing I want to bring before you as a reminder as we come out of this passage on discipline, that one of the best ways to avoid church discipline is self-discipline. To say it another way, one of the best ways to avoid examination by others is to examine yourself before the Lord. And as we come to the Lord's table, we have an opportunity to do just that. And so in just a moment, the ushers are going to come. They're going to deliver to you the elements. For those who need gluten-free, those are marked by a different color in the middle. For the rest of you, all of us, we will hang on to the elements and partake together at the end. But until that time, go before the Lord, bring your heart with you, and ask Him to search your heart. Psalm 139.23 should be our prayer. Search me, O God, know my heart. I love this because David's saying, I don't even know. There could be something. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the prayer of the people of God. So as the ushers come, let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we have certainly looked at a very serious topic this morning. Father, we look at it because you've given it to us. You've spoken the truth. You've given us the blueprint for how we should lovingly help one another when we are caught in sin. Father, we begin this process now by laying our hearts before you and asking for you to search us, to try us, to know our hearts as you alone can know it. And then as a grievous way is discovered, something that ought not to be there, that you would lead us in a way that is everlasting. And Father, in the midst of that searching, remind us of the truth that refuge is only found in the death and resurrection of your Son. Help that to motivate us to open up our hearts to the one who's given himself over to us. So Father, we thank you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.